So lesson eight, last week we had been in the book of First Samuel, and we had been in chapter 20, and we had been talking about uh, David escaping Saul again. So we read how Saul's persecution of David had begun to uh, ramp up to uh, quite literal lethal levels, and David was trying to flee him, and he was able to do so with the help of his good friend Jonathan. And so tonight, we're going to start off in 1 Samuel chapter 21. So if you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21, we'll start there tonight. And I'll go ahead and read the first nine verses of 1 Samuel 21. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then David came to Nob and to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, No one is to know anything about the matter which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Be assured, women have been denied to us as previously when I left, and the bodies of the young men were consecrated, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more then will their bodies be consecrated today? So the priest gave him consecrated bread. For there was no bread except the bread of the penance, which was removed from its place uh, before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. And David said to Ahimelech, Now is there no sword or no spear or sword on hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Okay, so question one says, Why did David go to Nob? What change in the situation since Eli's time is obvious from the fact that the priests were at Nob? So let's start with the first half of that question. Why did David go to Nob? He was on the run. Matt? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so he was, he was fleeing from Saul, and he did benefit here from here. Like Matt said, whether or not he had that in mind when he left, uh, we, don't, we don't know for certain. Um, he may have. The second half of this question says, what change in the situation since Eli's time is obvious from the fact that priests were at Nob? Rick? Yeah, I wasn't 100% sure what, what this part was looking for, exactly what change. 
So I'm, I'm not really sure. This is one that I struggled with a little bit. Matt? I, I think they want to think back to uh, Eli's time. I, I think it was back in 1 Samuel 4 where uh, they captured the ark. Mm-hmm. And it talks about, I think it mentions something like they destroyed Shiloh. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where it had been. So maybe the, the implication is that now the tabernacle can relocate to Nob because that's where the bread is coming from. Right? Yeah. The best answer that I was able to come up with was the fact that there are more priests now. In Eli's time, there weren't as many. And so perhaps uh, just the fact that the priesthood had grown some, so it had become a little bit more established, that's all I could come up with. I'm not really sure what the right answer is for this one. So all thoughts are welcome on these. I I thought it was farther down in the story. They had a weapon behind the ephod. Yeah, and we'll we'll get down to that one here in just a moment. So hold that thought. So question two says, uh, what bread did the priest give to David? And then what use did Jesus make of this incident in Matthew chapter 12? I would say that this is the most common reason that we go to this chapter in Samuel is, is specifically because Jesus used it. Jesus quoted uh, from this, and at, since Jesus used this as an example and directed us to it, this is why I see this particular chapter of Samuel preached so often. So, so uh, I guess first off, what bread did the priest give David? What's that? The holy bread? The bread of the presence, right? So this was the bread that was set before the presence of the Lord. And what use did Jesus make of this incident? Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 12, and we'll go ahead and read that section. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Um, Actually, I'm going to go back up to verse 1, because I think that that helps with the background a little bit. Starting in verse 1, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began, uh, became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Now when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for him to eat? nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. So what is Jesus getting at here with this example? What's the lesson here? Exceptions to the rule, right? Because they were were just, they weren't really working anyway. It's not like they were harvesting the field. What they Mm -hmm. were really doing was they were just picking some to eat. And just as with David back then, those priests allowed him to have bread to eat because part of, I have a note here in the the Amplified, part of their thing was that at their discretion to save someone's life, they could give them that bread so they would not be hungry and go ahead and be starving. Yeah, God understands the value of human life better than we do since he gave it to us, right? He valued that, and so many of the Old Testament laws were there specifically to stress the importance and the sanctity of life. 
And so Jesus is trying to stress that to them, that above above some of their, their rituals, human life is valued even above that, right? Matt? Yeah. And if, you know, people need rest, but they also, if you're starving to death, they need bread, too. So, yeah. the principle is to take care of business. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so here, we, we see that happening. And this is the, this is the example that Jesus refers to where David isn't taking this out of, out of some, uh, uh, desire to break rules, but out of a human need. He needed food. And so that's what drove it. Now, question three says, how did David arm himself? And Pat already started to allude to this one. How did David arm himself? Goliath's sword, right? Yeah. We remember back when he defeated Goliath that this was, this was placed here. You know, it was, it was given there. Um, I don't know why exactly they, they kept it in this specific location. Um, I don't know if that was meant to act as some sort of trophy or to as a symbol of God's victory, maybe. It doesn't really say why they chose it uh, to rest or to reside in that place. Uh, but nonetheless, it was there, and so this is the only weapon in this place, and so David claims that. Now, I do want to point out, our, our lesson book doesn't go over this point, but I, I think it's worth noting that when David came to Nob, and he's speaking to Ahimelech, he gives Ahimelech a reason as to why he's there, right? How honest would you say that answer is? We talked about that Sunday morning, didn't we? Did we? I don't remember. Well, not on this lesson, but we talked about how far we can go with uh, what we're saying, whether it's a lie or not. Yeah. This, um... In this case, we can see where the danger that's presented to David drives him to dishonesty in this case. Now, we know that looking back in David's history that danger to David's life didn't always make him do that. He certainly stood up to mortal peril more than once before, but in this case, it gets to him. It's easy for us to forget that some of the characters in the Bible, these, these larger-than-life characters, are just men. They're just human, you know, and they had flaws just like the rest of us. And while we might pass a test on one day, we might be able to withstand a temptation on one day. We might be weak to the exact same kind of temptation on a different day. It's important for us to remember as we read these things that not everything that these paragons in the Bible did was some wonderful, great thing. You know, we, we know that these are flawed people and they do flawed things from time to time. So it's important as we study these, do we understand what was, uh, what was a, a good lesson to learn from that character versus uh, a bad lesson that we don't want to take away from it, right? And this is one where uh, David's obviously lying, and that has consequences as we go down further. So I just wanted to point that out because I thought it was interesting. Pat? It could have been uh, in one of Matthew's sermons where he talked about Abraham and Sarah, where he lied about Sarah being his sister, and so that the lie about Abraham. Yeah, there are other characters that certainly fell for, uh, prey to similar temptations, and 
and same behaviors. Eileen? Why do you think? Why? Does he know that he's going to be potential patient? Does he know that? Why is it he's traveling along with that position? Could be. Kim, what do you think? He had a reputation that he had slain many people. So he was a warrior. There might be that fear. Yeah. Could be. That could certainly be it. David, David was a, a celebrity in Israel at this point for all the things that he had done. Uh, so certainly his reputation preceded him. That could be it. Rick? Just a thought, and it may not really have that much relevance, but you know, Samuel could have told them that David was going to be the next king, since this was the priest. And Because uh, he, he says, why are you alone and no one with you? He would expect, like he expected people to be with David. And also David was a commander of armies, so it wouldn't have been a surprise that he would have been with him. Yeah. And it could just be that, you know, something about the fact that this um, this famous person in Israel is traveling alone and in need of food, you know, that's not something you would expect from a, from a man who's uh, on the same level as King Saul's son, right? The fact that he's, he's showing up in the state he's in indicates that something's wrong. So uh, perhaps... Ahimelech was afraid for David, even. We we don't really know. They don't elaborate on that. Pat? I just have to think, too, that he was actually protecting Saul and not saying uh, all the bad things he knew about him, that he was out to kill him. He didn't uh, put anything on Saul. Again, we certainly see that David takes great consideration for Saul, certainly much more than Saul has for David um, as we go down through. So moving on to uh, number four. So we're going to read a few more verses down in 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel chapter 21, we're going to read verses 10 down to 15. So after David gets the bread and the sword, it says, Then David set out and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity while in their sight and acted insanely in their custody. And he scribbled on the doors of the gate and drooled on his beard. Then Achish said to him, Look, you see the man is behaving like an insane person. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack insane people that you have brought this one to behave like an insane person in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So to start, question four asks, what kind of city was Gath? Isn't this where Goliath is from? Mm -hmm. This was Goliath's hometown, right? What's another way that you might state that? City of Giants. City of Giants? Philistine. Yeah, it was an enemy city, right? We see it says, was the attempt to find refuge there a wise move by David? What do you suppose he could have been thinking? Why would, why would David flee to a city of his enemies? What's that? Because Saul wouldn't be there? 
The last place they'd look for him, maybe? Matt? Yeah, maybe he wouldn't be recognized. Perhaps, you know, if Saul's coming after him with an army, he can't exactly walk an army into an enemy city without being opposed. Maybe he thought he could, you know, kind of hide out there. Whatever the reason. Acting the way he did it made it sound like he was trying to cover up who he was because if they realized he killed the lad, his life might be at stake. Pat, you're jumping ahead of me again. <laughs> we will get there. I know, you're eager. It's great. So question five says, what wars had given David the fame celebrated in the song, quoted in verse 11, where they say, Saul had slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. What wars gave David that fame that led to that song? Fighting the Philistines? Yeah, I, I wasn't I sure. An official name, but. I don't know if there was an official name. If anybody knows of that, I'd like to know it. But I just said, said the wars with the Philistines. Is there another one? Right. And there was that thing mentioned about being successful in war. Then there's also the 200 Philistines killed at the bride price. So right. All those. Yeah, several conflicts that are listed out. I don't know if they're ever given like an official name, but they're all conflicts with the Philistines. Now, Pat, how did David escape the danger? He acted crazy, right? This is, this is an almost comical moment in the Bible where they bring David, who's acting insane, before Achish. I like Achish. Uh, I like his response. You know, do I need more crazy people? Do I really need that? It's, it's really comical. So it's also interesting because you can look and understand a little bit more about David's mindset if you go to the Psalms right here. There are two Psalms specifically that I would point your attention to. We won't read all of them, but first is Psalm 56. Psalm 56 is about when he's first captured. Uh, let me see. Let me flip over here. If you look at Psalm 56, it says, just in verse 1, it says, For the music director, according to Jonath Elam Rehoakim, a victim of David, it says, When the Philistines seized him in Gath. And so you can see, as you go down through here, down through Psalm 56, that David is afraid. Now, eventually, by the end of the psalm, that fear turns to trust in the Lord. But it kind of sets the tone for what happens when David flees to the city and then gets captured. And if you turn over to Psalm 34, uh, Psalm 34 is about when David acted crazy and escaped. Psalm 34, in the first verse, it says, A psalm of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and departed. And so you can kind of get a better uh, understanding of David's mind and where he was at spiritually by reading these Psalms. Again, when, you, when you're able to look at multiple books of the Bible side by side, they offer so much insight into the characters and what's going on. So I'm going to pause there for just a moment. Any other questions, comments before we continue on with the lesson? Kim? One 
terrified and afraid, fear will make you do wacky, crazy things. Yeah, absolutely. Matt. We asked the same question and asked about the statement with the bread. You know, is he being honest? Is he being honest in his portrayal of himself being crazy here when in fact he's not? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an act of war, right? He's, yeah. Is it honest to stab someone in the heart when you're in battle? That's <laughs> I mean, kind of what happens in war. It's just pretty rough. Yeah. I think you can see that. Whether or not that ended up being a fault accredited to him, you can see from the Psalms that he still had much trust in the Lord. And so this is still a time in David's life where he is very, very much um, trusting in God. And God's spirit is still leading him because he's eventually going to take this throne from Saul. And so this is still... Uh, a period in David's life where although he does make some mistakes, I would say he's still on the rise and, and for the most part righteous. Again, he's still human. He's prone to mistakes, just like all of us. So question seven says, um, it's talking about David at the cave of Adullam and then in Moab. And uh, we're going to read this first part here before we actually read the question. So, we are in First uh, Samuel chapter 22 for this part. First Samuel chapter 22. I have a question. Yes, Pat. Uh, before he goes and gets the, the sword of Goliath, it never mentions it anymore. Like when he went into the city of Gath. What I understand, that was a pretty good sized sword. Like, mm -hmm. how did he just hide it <laughs> when he went in? Did he put it underneath a it doesn't say. He might have abandoned it. Oh, maybe. They might have known it was his. Um, they might have thought it belonged to one of the other giants. It really doesn't say. David might have ditched that before he was captured. We really just don't know. So, First Samuel chapter 22, starting in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 5. So after David departed there and escaped from the cave of Adullam and went with his brothers and all of his father's household or and when his brothers and all of his father's household heard about it, they went down there to him. Then everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him and David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab and stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. But Gad the prophet said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Leave and go into the land of Judah. So David left and went into the forest of Hereth. So when you consider the rest of the chapter, do you think it was wise for David's family to come with him to the cave of Adullam? Explain. Well, first of all, it's yeah. easier to hide when it's just one person. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot easier to hide when it's just you, right? So maybe in that, in that regard, we would say maybe that was unwise. 
what about the rest of the, if you think down, if you've read the rest of the chapter, why might this have been a good or a bad thing? Well, Jesse was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe there was still some connection to the Moabites that they could make use of here. I'm not, I'm not really sure, it's just a thought. Mm -hmm. My thinking was that perhaps if David's family had stayed where they were, that Saul would have had them executed. The fact that they go into hiding when Saul is actively searching for him, Saul may have found them if they had stayed where they were. And so by going and hiding with David, they might have saved their lives. So we don't know that for a fact, but that could have been what the author is getting at here. Now, it says that others came with him, too. So who else came with them? Yeah, the band of misfits. Right. <laughs> All these people that are um, bitter and in debt. All the malcontents, right? People who are distressed, in, in debt, discontented. I wanted to say Robin Hood. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> Robin Hood, yeah. What was come out was Peter Pan. I knew that was wrong. <laughs> His band of merry men, right? Yeah. Or not so merry men. Yeah, so so uh, David gathers uh, a little bit of a following, people who are not happy with Saul's rule, and he brings them uh, together, and he becomes the captain over them. Now, talking a little bit about Saul's character, during this chapter here, what impression do you get of Saul at this time? Do the characteristics that he displays, do you think that those encourage strong loyalty to him? And of course, you got to back up your answer. I think he was an instigator and he tried to get others to do his dirty work. Okay. And he wanted sympathy. So he used people. So he uses people. Do you think that that gives him strong loyalty? No? Okay. Rick? I think the fact that David was so loyal to him, and he was so hot to, of course, kill David for really no good reason that any, any no normal person would know of any reason why he would want to kill David, and they would see David as a heroic figure and loyal to the king. Yeah. So that would not inspire you to be loyal to that king, to that leader. Right. Matt? He's afraid. Yeah. He's afraid. I think it kind of comes down to how you're defining loyalty in this particular situation. If you're thinking about the honorable kind of loyalty that, that, that people want to follow a hero, then no. I, I would personally say that Saul is not acting in a way that would generate that, right? Now, if you're saying, like, will people obey him and follow orders because they fear him, because he's manipulating them or he's... You know, it, it says that he was sitting there with his spear in his hand. And we knew he threw that at David a couple times. Like, who, what other servants had Saul acted like that around, you know? Surely they've heard, like, we know that Saul had a distressing spirit on him. And he was ranting and raving, walking around with his spear. How many other people feared that they might have a spear thrown at them? So if you think that people would obey him out of fear... If you consider that loyalty in this case, then I would say yes, right? 
But in general, I, I think what the text is getting at here is that no, Saul is Saul is manipulative, but he's also acting like a crazy person. He's he's paranoid. Um, he's he's not acting in a very uh, royal kingly manner, right? We'll answer one more question here, and then I think it's time we'll we'll have to wrap up. So question nine: How did Saul learn where David was? He checked find friends on his phone, right? That rotten Doeg. He would have gotten away with it too, right? Doeg the Edomite. We're told a little bit about Doeg. Who was Doeg? We were introduced to him earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had said he, that he had, he was there when that took place because he was detained before the Lord. I don't know exactly what that entails. It, it sounds like he might have done something wrong and they were holding him there for a little bit. I don't know if that was punishment or questioning. It also said that he was chief of Saul's shepherds. So a man of some, some level of importance um, as well. All right, we'll stop there for tonight. We'll pick up uh, next week. Um, we'll be continuing in 1 Samuel 22. So thank you, everyone. I really appreciate the participation. If you want to go ahead and follow with me, I encourage you to open up your Bibles back to the book of Matthew, to chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 43 down to the end of the chapter. Given the fact that we're talking about enemies of God here tonight in Bible study, and it's also raining very heavily. It kind of brought this passage to mind, so um, I thought it was very fitting. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, Jesus is speaking. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles, do they not do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In this short section here that we just read, Jesus gives a command, then he gives an example, and he gives an explanation of that command. The command is that we need to love not only our neighbors, but our enemies. It's not hard for us as Christians to look out into the world and see those that we might consider our enemies. You can turn on the news and you can see many people doing very unrighteous things. You can look into your own life, into your own, uh, in your job, your family, your friends, uh, people in the community, and you can see those who are not living godly lives. It's not hard to see people that we would call evil or unrighteous. But we are given an example by Jesus of how to act around those people. 
Jesus first tells us that we need to love them just as we love our neighbors. And then he goes on further and he gives us an example of how God already does this same thing. It says that God gives the sun and the rain to those who are good and to evil. Now, looking out tonight, maybe we're not so fond of the rain, but in this example, the rain is a good thing. People back in those times, there were a lot more farmers and those who grew crops and grains. And what do you need to grow good crops, right? You need sun and you need rain. That leads to good harvests, right? People needed those things to be able to live. And this is a blessing that God gave to everyone. He gave it to righteous and unrighteous, to everyone. So even those who lived unrighteous lives, God still had benefits available to them. He's giving us that example. And then Christ goes on to explain why that's important. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? In other words, is it really that difficult to be loving to someone who already loves you? For someone who's kind to you and loves you and treats you well, is it really such a hard chore to love them back? It's easy, right? It's easy to love those who love you first. Much harder to show love to those who don't love you. And so that's what Christ is encouraging us to do. When we go to work, we're rewarded for doing hard things. That's why it's called work, right? When we go out and we do something fun, it's a hobby, and we typically don't get rewarded and paid for those things, right? The reward is maybe our own enjoyment. When we go to work and we work hard, we earn our paychecks. We earn money for that. When we want to earn a good reward with Christ, we need to do something that's worth a reward. And Christ is encouraging us to love those who don't always love us back. He even gives some examples saying that tax collectors, who are people who are not very well respected at the time. He said that they love people who love the, them. He said that Gentiles, so outside of the, the Jewish audience that he was talking to, people who weren't following the Torah, he said that they love people that love them. It's an easy thing to do. He's asking us to do something that's harder. He's asking us to be godlike and to emulate God's behavior so that we can be perfect as God is perfect. And so he gives us a command, and then in his goodness, he gives us an example and an explanation of it. Tonight, I invite you to follow Christ's example, because this is one that applies to all of us. It is so easy for all of us to look out with scorn on those other people in the world who aren't trying to follow the Bible. There are people who mock it. There are people who don't 